Well, if you got your Bibles, open up to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's where we're at tonight. We're going to uh, finish up chapter 2 this evening. And uh, 1 Thessalonians is just one of those incredible books that just uh, has so many amazing topics, so many amazing uh, messages that really can flow through this book. And uh, when we come to tonight, uh, last week we talked about uh, the man of God, those that are anointed by God. And this week we talk about the ministry of God's anointed. And uh, when we think about it, we think about areas of ministry. And I know I've talked about this several times because I feel like it is important for us to grasp and understand it. There are really five areas of ministry within the church, and everything falls under those five categories. Now, those categories are evangelism, they are discipleship, worship, serving, and fellowship. Uh, every area of the church focuses around those five areas. And, and you see it when you look out at some of the little placards we have out there. Uh, and it talks about what we're desiring to do, investing in your growth in those five areas by reaching and teaching and praising and serving and connecting. And when you think about that, everything falls down in that atmosphere. In other words, if, if we're at a church and we're doing something and it doesn't fall into one of those categories, then it, guess what? It shouldn't be done in the church. It can be done elsewhere. But in the church, everything needs to revolve around those five areas of ministry. In truth, everything that we do as Christians should revolve around those five areas of ministry, how we can better serve even out in our own community. Now, here's the amazing thing, too. When you think about these five things, there's only one of these things that cannot be done in heaven, right? Evangelism. There's nobody to win in heaven, all right? It's too late at that point. So I think that's a very vital and important aspect of things that we need to be looking for and reaching out to in the ministry of God's church. Well, tonight we're going to look at two areas of ministry that Paul imparted to the Thessalonians. In other words, these were the ministries that God had instilled in Paul that he might show forth to those people, that he might set an example for them, uh, that he might make a difference in their lives. So we're going to take a look at these two areas of ministry. The first one we're going to look at is feeding the sheep. And so if you look with me, we're going to look in verse 13 beginning out. It says, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believeth. Now, isn't it interesting? What, what Paul is basically saying there is he's saying, look, you saw that our desire was to feed the sheep. Our main goal was to feed you, to help you to grow, to help you understand God's word. And I love this because it's the way they received it. He says, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard from us, ye received it not as the word of men. Oftentimes I hear people say, they'll talk about the Bible and they'll say, oh, it's just the the word of men. You know, simple men wrote a simple book and they were trying to basically delegate things so that people would fall in line and they would just, it's just another religious thing. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Oh, it's a, it's, a, it's a fallible book written by fallible men. I've heard that one too. I've heard people make a statement like, the Word of God is no more special than any other book in the world. Well, that's interesting. I, I would love to disagree with that for just a moment on a few aspects. Number one, it's the bestseller and nobody's ever going to catch it. It's the bestseller and nobody is ever going to catch up to that book. It's that good. But not only that, what I think is unique and really awesome about the Word of God is it was written by over 40 different authors, over four different continents. It was written over a 1,600-year span of time. All of them focused on one person, 
All of them focused on one goal, on one mission. Now you're talking about it was written by shepherds, it was written by tax collectors, it was written by prophets and priests and kings, it was written by poets, it was written by historians, it was written by leaders, and it was written by common men. It was even some of it written by women. Now what's interesting when you think about that, they all had a common theme, they were all focused on God, and not one time did it ever contradict itself. No one has ever found a contradiction in the Word of God. And here's what I tell people. If you think you found a contradiction, please come tell me. Show me. I'd love to see it, but you won't find it because it's not in there. It is the word of God. It's not the word of man. If man had written this book over a 1,600-year period of time, 40 different people writing from over many different countries, they would have messed up at some point. But you see, it is the infallible, inerrant word of God. It's not the word of man. Now, you think about this. If this was the word of man then there's a lot of things that God or the man would have skipped. You know, isn't it interesting when you think about some of the characters of the Bible, I believe that if they had their opportunity to kind of say in there, I believe Peter would have told some of the other disciples, hey guys, forget when I denied Jesus, please. I don't want that in there, right? Or the other disciples who wrote it could have said, hey, you know what? I can kind of put myself at the foot of the cross as opposed to being one of those guys that ran away to an upper room and was scared, right? A lot of these guys, they wouldn't want to do that. Not only that, but they also would have made the message a little bit fluffier, a little bit nicer. But you think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but not to us which are saved, it is the power of God. You think about it. The crucifixion is foolishness to the world. They think that it is, it is crazy to think that God himself came in the flesh, put himself on a cross to die for our sins, as opposed to just erasing it, wiping it clean, and saying you're all forgiven. But God is a righteous God. He's a holy God. He goes on, he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jew require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, what Paul said is, man, I could have made it a lot simpler. I could have made it a lot easier. Why would I have preached the crucifixion if I didn't believe it was real? The word of man, here's the thing, we would have made it so much more simple. It would have simply been like a universalist belief. You know what a universalist belief is, right? Everybody in the universe is going to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe or how you live. Man, that would have been a really easy message to have proclaimed, but it's not truth. It's not wisdom. It's not right. There are people who believe that, and they're going straight to hell. Because the Bible tells us there's only one way. God made only one bridge, only one way. Paul said, You didn't accept it as the word of men. You accepted it what? But as it is in truth, the word of God. Man, I love it. Paul even quotes it as scripture in 1 Corinthians 15. Said he was crucified, what? As in the scriptures. And he was buried and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. We know it's scripture. We know it comes from God. That it is the mouth-breathed word of God that is given to us. He tells us in Galatians 1, if anybody preaches a different message to you, Don't have anything to do with them. Reject their message. But I love 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. Peter is speaking there. 
And he simply says this in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. He says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They were moved by the Holy Ghost. 2 Timothy 3 tells us it's the inspired word of God. It is God breathed. The people in Thessalonica accepted it, received it, believed it as the words of God. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, Paul says this, or Peter says this, feed the flock of God which is among you. Feed them. Feed them what? Feed them the word of God. Why is the word of God so important? Why is the word of God something that we need constantly? Something that not only do we need to hear it in church, but we need to be reading it for ourselves daily. Well, I'm going to tell you a couple of reasons why we need the word of God so badly. The word of God saves us, Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It teaches and it trains us, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It guides us, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It counsels us, Psalm 119, 24. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. It revives us, Psalm 119, 154. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. It warns and it rewards us, Psalm 1911. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. It grows us, 1 Peter 2, 2. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. It judges us, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It sanctifies us, John 17.17. 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. It frees us, John 8.31-32. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It enriches us, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. It protects us, Psalm 119.11, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It strengthens us, Psalm 119.28, my soul melts from heaviness, strengthen me according to your word. It makes us wise, Psalm 119.97-100, oh how I love your law, it is my meditation all the day. You through your commandments make me wiser than my enemies for they are ever with me i have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation i understand more than the ancients because i keep your precepts it also rejoices the heart psalm 19 and verse 8 the statutes of the lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandment of the lord is pure enlightening the eyes and it prospers us joshua 1 8 this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate day and night that you may observe to do all according to all that is written in it for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. The word of God, there is no other book like it. 
There is no other book that man needs to study and understand. I'll be honest with you. There are a lot of good books out there. There are a lot of great books that I have in my library. But there is no greater book than the Word of God. There is no book that I need to read every single day like the Word of God. There is no book that can train me, prepare me, use me, direct me, guide me, lead me, show me the will of God like the Word of God. So I hope you understand. And this is what the people understood. They received it in truth as the Word of God. God. It was as if Paul stood there and as he spoke to the people it's as if God just simply spoke through Paul. He was simply a puppet that God used to glorify his name and preach his counsel to the people. That is how they received it. And I love this. He says this, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Man, isn't that awesome? The word of God works in you. Can I just tell you something? Don't read the Bible if you don't want to change. Okay? That, that's the honest truth. If you don't want it to work in you, then don't read it. That is why a lot of Christians don't read the Bible. They're afraid of what that book will do to them if they begin to read it. If you begin to read it, and here's the thing. A lot of people come up to me and they say, well, you know, I'm not sure about my salvation. I'm not sure where I'm at. There are a lot of people. I'll even ask non-Christians to read the Word of God. Why? Because even God can use His Word to change and transform their life. If you've ever talked to a non-Christian and they don't know what to do and they're wondering about what's going on, have them read the Gospel of John. It's a great book for them to begin and pray every single time, God, speak to me if you're real. Speak to me if you're real. I promise you they'll get to chapter 7 and by the time they get to chapter 7, he's already spoke to them. He's already talked to them. He's already told them that they need to get their life right with God. That's the truth of the matter. The Word of God will effectually work in those who read it. It will challenge you and it will change you. It will make you different than you have ever been before. If you want to change in your life, start reading the book. If you want to see something happen, something that's completely different, if you're tired of going through the mundane, you're tired of going through the rut, you're tired of going through the ringer, you're ready to move on, you're ready to do something different, read the book. It's that simple. It will effectually change you forever. Paul said, I'm going to feed the sheep. Number two, secondary ministry, Paul wanted to part the Thessalonians. Get this. He wanted to suffer from persecution. Listen to this, verse 14. I'm go ahead and read all the way through verse 20. For you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always. For the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you in a short time, and the presence not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Look at this. He says, he says, you became followers of the churches of God which are in Judea and Christ Jesus. Judea is where it started. In other words, the church started there in Jerusalem. It started in Judea. It started in that area where the word of Christ was found among them. It started in the days of Pentecost. But don't you realize that even from the moment the church got started, persecution began? Even when Pentecost happened, the people tried to defer and say that's not the spirit of God. They're simply drunk. 
But man, you go on and you read more and more in the book of Acts and you see how the persecution occurred over and over and over again in the early church. In Acts 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people, preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was even now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. You go over to Acts chapter 5 and verse 26, and there you'll find it reads this. It says, then he went, then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should have been stoned. You go over to Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, and Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Great persecution came on the early church. Why? Because they thought if we could chase them away early, They won't spread. It won't make a difference. The problem was what we don't realize is that when persecution came, it made the church get bigger. One great saint said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's the truth. Man, we would see more things happen. You ready for this? I believe we would see more things happen in the American church when persecution shows up. Now, let's just be honest. (laughs) Many of y'all are like, yeah, and I hear people say this all the time, you know. Lord, keep us safe. Is that what the disciples prayed when they got in that upper room? Said, man, if you'll be quiet, if you'll stop teaching the truth, you'll be good. We won't persecute you. We won't beat you. We won't throw you into prisons. We won't kill you. What did they do? They went up in the upper room and they said they prayed. And what did they pray for? They prayed for boldness. Boldness. So that they might speak even more. So that they might be even louder. So that they might make an even greater difference. We're not afraid of what they can bring our way. We're willing to suffer. Here's the truth. The Bible makes it very clear. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. You might want to ask yourself, have you suffered for the cause of Christ? If he says all those, all, I learned this in college My professor, his name was Paul Fink, and he used to have this saying with the word all. You ready for it? I want you to to understand the word all. You ready? He would simply say this, all means all, and that's all all means. He just didn't want us to get it confused. So he says, all those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. So if you have not suffered persecution, can you say you have lived a godly life? If A equals B, then B must equal A, right? Okay, I'm going to do a little math real quick for you guys. You ready? Let's let's do a little math, all right? I know it's geometry because we're using letters, right? You know, everybody loved that part. But if he says living godly, causes persecution, then if you've been persecuted, you must be living godly. If you're not living godly, you don't need to worry about persecution. If you're not worried about persecution, you must not be living godly. Is that clear enough? Because that's what Paul says. 
You see, we will suffer persecution. And guess what? We should be willing to suffer persecution. We should be willing to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. We should be willing to be called fools for Christ. We should be willing to go out here and proclaim the name of Jesus all across this world. We should be willing to take suffering for the name of Christ and not worry about what this world has in store for us. Because this world is not our home. Verse 15, he says, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. Isn't it amazing that they never had a problem killing God's son? You know, Jesus told a parable about this in Matthew 21, didn't he? He talked about a vineyard that he had lent out to people. And they, were in, they went out into that vineyard. And so they produced these great crops. And so the Lord of the house sent some servant to go and collect what was belonging to him, right? And it says that they stoned his servant. So he sends another servant, and they beat him. And so he sends another servant, and they beat him. And they send him back on his way, and he says, Oh, but if I send my son, they'll respect him. The son goes in to where the vineyard's at, and what do they do? It says, before he even got there, they said, Oh, that's the son. If we kill him, this vineyard will be ours. If we get rid of him... We won't have to worry about that guy coming back. And sure enough, what they do, they killed the son. And what happened to the landowner? He says, oh, I'm going back with a vengeance. He said, I'm going to bring down the hammer upon them. You see, he says here that they killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. Those servants represented the prophets of God. We see throughout Scripture they constantly persecuted the prophets of God. Even Stephen, as he was dying in Acts chapter 7, proclaiming a message to them, told them they persecuted the prophets of God. In fact, Jesus said, you build the monuments, you build the tombs of the prophets, the very ones that if you were there, you would have killed them too. Why? Because they didn't want to hear the message of God. Man, when I read the book of Hebrews chapter 11... And there's two verses that are mind-blowing to me. And it's verses 37 and 38. And he says this, talking about the prophets. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. They were willing They were willing vessels to be suffering for the cause of God. And then Paul says, not only did you kill the Lord Jesus and our own prophets, but you've also persecuted us. Paul said, you've persecuted. Man, I'm going to tell you, there is not a man other than Jesus that I believe suffered like Paul. 2 Corinthians 11. Every time I read this, it just blows my mind. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 28. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I've suffered shipwreck. A day and a night I've been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. 
Why would somebody go through all that? I'll explain it to you real simple. When you know you have the truth, you will die for it. You know, one of the greatest reasons to believe the resurrection is real is the disciples would not have died for a lie. If they truly had stolen the body, they would not have died for that. Who would? You'd have to be crazy, right? But man, they were willing to suffer the persecution. They were willing to deal with these blows over and over again because of God's blessing upon them. And it says, and they please not God and are contrary to all men. In other words, those that killed the prophets, those that killed the Savior, those that persecuted them, those that harmed them, they thought, in this interesting, they thought they were doing the will of God. I wonder if there's ever been a time in your life where you thought you were doing God's bidding and you were actually doing Satan's. I'll tell you when you've done that, if you've ever talked foolishly about any other Christian. Did you know that? You're not doing God's bidding. You may say, well, I'm fighting a battle you just don't know about. If you're fighting a battle against a man or a woman, or if you're doing that, you're not even fighting the right battle. You're already in the wrong battle. Therefore, you've already lost the battle because you're losing your testimony. Hello? That's the truth. Man, you say, well, well, they don't agree with me. Welcome to America. Right? We don't all agree. Guess what? Even Christians don't all agree. But just because we don't agree doesn't mean we can't get along, right? Man, that's exactly what the world wants us to do. The world wants us to be arguing and fighting with each other. Why? Because if we're doing that on the inside, they're on the outside going, ha, they can't even get along. They can't even get along. Man, oftentimes we think we might be doing the will of God, but I promise you, if it looks like anything Satan would be doing, it's not the will of God. If it's something that he would copy, don't fool yourself. He goes, oh man, we've been persecuted. They thought they were pleasing God, but they pleased. Look at what he says. They please not God and are contrary to all men. Look at verse 16. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Isn't that interesting that the message, they tried to forbid it time and time again in the early church. I love Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. He says, then came one and told them, saying, behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then they went, the captain with officers, and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, did we... Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in his name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I love this. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. You can tell us to stop, but it ain't going to happen. You can threaten to persecute us, but we're going to keep talking. You can beat us, and every time they beat them, what they do? They ran out rejoicing. Man, I got to suffer like Jesus. Hallelujah. Paul, when he's in prison, as opposed to groaning and moaning and being upset that they tied him up in prison, he was singing hymns and praises to God. Man, they never let it get them down. They could forbid them all they wanted to. 
But the message was never going to stop. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. To fill up their sins alway. For the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. You know, Jesus had talked about the Pharisees about that, didn't he? He said to the Pharisees something real simple. He said, you are denying them and you are creating sons more and more fit for hell. In other words, you're denying the truth and you continue to fill the people up with your lies and you are leading people to hell. And they are becoming, in fact, your apprentices are becoming more sons of hell than you are, is what he said. He says they are keeping people from being saved. Can I tell you one of the worst things that we can do as Christians is keep people from being saved? You say, well, how can I keep somebody from being saved? By your life. Now, let's just be honest. They can't use you as their excuse. They'll stand before God one day and they can't say, well, so-and-so didn't live it right in front of me. It's all their fault why I didn't accept you, Lord. That's not going to fly for God. But can you imagine the hurt that's got to put on you if somebody tried to use you as their excuse for not getting saved? Man, he says here that they tried what? That they might not be saved. They might be saved to fill up their sins always. Look at verse 17. He says, what we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. Isn't that interesting? Paul is reminded of how short a time he had with the Thessalonians. Paul only got to spend three weeks with them. He wanted to go back in. Listen to verse 5 of Acts 17. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they had found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rules of the city, crying, These that have turned, I love this, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither. Man, wouldn't you like that to be said about you? Somebody that turns the world. Here's what you need to understand about that terminology first and foremost. When sin came into the world, it turned the world upside down. These men came to set it right back up. By turning the world upside down, they did the opposite of what the world desired. The world enjoyed living in their sin, but they came to show them a different way. He said, they turned the world upside down. Verse 7, whom Jason, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the others, they let them go. They let them just go on. Go, go on to the next town. Get out of here. We don't want you in Thessalonica anymore. They go on down to Berea. Guess what? It wasn't a good thing for them. They wanted to chase them out of Berea as well. In other words, they didn't want the message spreading any further. They wanted them to stop speaking. They continuously persecuted them. They continuously did everything they could to hinder the word of God from spreading. But Paul and the others were willing to suffer persecution for the cause of Christ. Why? Verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are our glory and joy. You know what he said? He said, my joy and my crown and my jewels, my reward in this world was leading you to Jesus. And when he comes back, we get to go together. Man, how awesome is that? Man, do you, can you imagine? Get this. Can you imagine? 
And this is why I tell people, it is so addicting when you lead somebody to Jesus. You want to do it again, and you want to do it again, and you want to do it again. Why? Because here's the thing. You come to the realization that one day when Jesus comes back, he's going to take you, and he's going to take all those that came to know Christ. And guess what? You will have been a part of that. To me, you know what? A lot of people say, well, we get crowns and trophies in heaven. I don't know where they get trophies from. I do know where we get crowns from. All right? But what are the crowns used for? What well, says we're going to lay them at his feet. You know there's one jewel we get to keep in heaven? Those we led to Jesus when we see them there together with us. Man, what a joy. He said, you're my joy. You are my hope. You are my crown of rejoicing. Let me tell you something. When I get to be up there, that is one of the most exciting times for me as a pastor. It is. Because it is in recognition of what's already taken place. Here's the thing. You don't realize this. Most people actually don't get saved in the church. A lot of people get saved outside of church. They just come in here and make their proclamation known. Guess what? I had a lady one time. She, we were talking on her front porch, and she made the statement. She said, and I said, do you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior right now? And she goes, on my porch? And I said, yeah, right here. She goes, I'll wait till I go to church. I was like, you already told me early in this conversation, y'all don't even have an altar call, so how are you going to do it at the church? Right? I was like, you can do it right here. You don't have to wait till you go to church. But my point is simply this. Whether you get saved at home, whether you get saved at your job, whether you get saved in the church, whether you get saved at the school, wherever you get saved, it doesn't matter. The truth of the matter is, is we just want to rejoice with you. Because we can't think of any better decision you've ever made. We can't think of any greater accomplishment in your life. There will be no greater decision you'll ever make. We just want to rejoice with you. I love Paul's statement for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. Folks, he's coming. The question is, are you ready?